Those Space People, a podcast series of casual cosmic conversations with people working on exciting space projects. Today we have Alice Gorman with us. She is a space archaeologist. She examines defunct satellites, rocket pods, and such abandoned human-made objects in space and researches their preservation as cultural heritage. Alice is currently based in Adelaide, Australia. Welcome to the show, Alice. Thanks for having me on, Rishana. I'm sure you get this question all the time, but can you talk a little bit about your background and how you got into, or shall I say, pioneered space archaeology? Uh, sure. So I basically started a career as a, a, a regular sort of archaeologist. So I'm from Australia and the focus of my work was Indigenous or Aboriginal archaeology. And I had a particular focus on stone tools but worked across a lot of areas, um, also including historical and industrial archaeology. The space archaeology thing came about um, because one day I was basically looking up at the night sky and it occurred to me that some of the bits of light I could see weren't stars or planets, they were actually bits of space junk. And I thought, oh my God, that's archaeology, like that is human stuff that people have put into space that you could study as an archaeological record. And it seemed to make perfect sense to me because when I was a, a, a very young child, I, I had had an ambition to be an astrophysicist or an astronomer. So when I thought this, it, it just was like something clicking into place. And, and I realized that this was something I had to pursue. And this was about, oh, well, it's about 20 years ago now, which is kind of a frightening thought to think of. And there were a couple of other people in the world who had also been thinking about this. But, but I suppose, you know, not to put too fine a point on it, people thought it was mad, you know. They thought this was, why would you do this? Like, this is a bit ridiculous. And I'm happy to say 20 years on, now the idea of that stuff in space might have heritage value and that it is actually an archaeological record that we can study to learn something about human behavior. That's an accepted idea now, which is very nice. And, and it's also very timely because I don't need to tell you that there's this massive acceleration of proposals to go to the moon and onto Mars. We have thousands, tens of thousands of satellites being launched at the moment into low Earth orbit mega constellations. So the, the questions around heritage value and what we keep and what we don't keep and what this means for humanity is, is they're actually quite pressing questions right at this point in time. So it's an interesting, interesting time to be a space archaeologist. Wow, 20 years ago is really thinking far ahead into the future. When an average person thinks of archaeology, you know, what really comes to mind is archaeologists digging for ruins or fossils and trying to know about civilizations or humans and animals that lived before their time. But the space age, you know, it began in the late 50s and we already have all the information about all the satellites launched, all the rockets launched, all the missions so far. So how does uh, space archaeology add to this information? Well, this is a very interesting point because as it turns out, we don't have all the information. And that's for a whole bunch of reasons. I'm not saying there's not an incredible amount of documentation because there is. 
and that's fantastic. So for, for someone like me, that's a huge extra body of evidence that we can use. But is it is amazing the records that don't survive. And this is for a few reasons. This is because when you're living in the moment, there are things you just take for granted about the world you live in that, that you don't record, you don't write down. And they're often precisely the things that someone coming from the future, uh, you know, even 10 years into the future, let alone 70 as we really are now for the space age, uh, the kinds of questions we want to ask, often nobody took a picture or wrote an account of it because it was just part of their world. There was no necessity to pull it out. So, so those kinds of things we often don't have. There's also a terrible phenomenon. It makes me feel almost ill when I think about it. You know, companies have their own records and their own data and archives, but frequently, you know, one company gets bought by another one. They have to move someone looks at these filing cabinets full of all of this stuff and says, well, we don't need those, and they get rid of them, and they're gone. Like Just like that, they can be gone. <laughs> and sometimes people think ahead and digitise some material, and but usually this is done very poorly because they don't have the services of a, a professional archivist. So there's stuff that just doesn't exist anymore because somebody thought, oh, look, we just can't be bothered carting that around. And it's gone to recycling or landfill or something like that. So even though there is so much, there's also just huge gaps in that documentary record. But even without that, the point of doing archaeological work, I guess, is, is that we're interested in the actual materiality of the objects and the places and the landscapes where everything takes place. And that can be very different to what is written about objects as well. So when you centre the, the material object, it, it often leads you to think, of, uh, think about them in different ways. And I think that can be really interesting. That can give you insights into like technological trajectories or design decisions or even sometimes social and political motivations for why something happened that was never written down or never recorded or, or you know, even somebody didn't think about. And, and this is partially why those who know my work will know I have a, a bit of an obsession with cable ties or zip ties. And, and this is exactly a perfect example of that because they're just these little bits of plastic. They're manufactured in millions and they're thrown away in millions. And people don't think about using them. They're just, just a background object. But for me, they've become a, an object in the foreground because they say something about how people go about their work and the decisions they make in, in creating a, a spacecraft or a satellite or, or an antenna or whatever it is. But nobody writes about them in, in exactly that way because they're just insignificant background stuff. So from an archaeological perspective, pull the cable tie out and start thinking about what it means and suddenly you have something, well, I think you have something interesting to say. Wow, that's a very new perspective for me. Can you give one example of something that you found this way, some lost information that you could piece together? Oh, I guess I'll come back to the cable tie for that one. So 
A few years ago, I did a survey of a former NASA tracking station called Aurora Valley in the Australian Capital Territory, just near Canberra. This was actually where I sort of first realised the significance of cable ties. So this was a, a really interesting, it was a facility funded and set up by NASA, but run by Australians. And its function was to track low Earth orbit satellites. It ran from 1965 to 1985. And it had a massive 26 metre dish antenna, which was kind of the centrepiece of the site. And when it was decommissioned in 1985, the antenna was dismantled and taken to be part of a radio uh, observatory, radio astronomy observatory in Tasmania. And there's just like a, a huge concrete footing left where that antenna once was. And in the archaeological survey that we did around this footing, we found a whole range of different cable ties that were still there. Like, uh, so this was, when was this? This was about 12 years ago, I think, we did this work. So all of the cable, the, the antenna was gone, but the cable ties were still there. And they had, it was like, you know, if you're looking at stone tools or broken ceramics or different types of bricks and mortar at an archaeological site, you expect to get a range of variability in the kinds of artifacts that you find. And this turned out to be the same with cable ties. So there were long ones, there were skinny ones, there were black ones, white ones, ones that were sort of translucent or transparent. And it was clear that they all had different types of function. And then the black ones, for example, are, are outside ones. They're meant to be UV resistant. And the, the very long ones, they were there because they carried a particular cable load. So they would have been part of the structure that had the greatest bulk of cables. So maybe the, the sort of central part of the structure where the cables are going up to the, to the uh, main data collection areas. Uh, but we also saw that they had been removed. So they were no longer obviously on the cables in the antenna, which was gone. They were on the ground. So they'd been taken off and they'd been taken off in a range of particular ways. Some of them had been cut. Some of them had been torn. Some of them had actually been burnt, probably with a cigarette lighter. And this spoke to us about a moment in time, which I've never come across any records for. This is when there are people working on the site to dismantle the antenna. They're probably under time pressure. They have to get those cable ties off so that they can take the cables out and they can start to take down the, the hard infrastructure. So we know we've probably got at least three people uh, each of whom are choosing different methods to get to take the, the cable tie or zip tie off, each of which is using uh, a different instrument, so some kind of cutter. One of them must be quite strong because it takes a lot of effort to actually pull uh, and break a cable tie apart. And they're working very quickly and they're not very fussed about how they do it. And so we have in these little broken bits of plastic we actually have a snapshot into this activity, the, the removal of the 26-metre dish. That isn't recorded anywhere else. Like there, I've not been able to find any photographs of this happening. 
I don't know who the people were. I don't know what tools they had. But the cable ties, the broken cable ties actually tell the story of how the antenna was taken down. And we think because of the distribution of the cable ties across the landscape, we think that there was a wind blowing that day. So when they let the cable tie go, they cut it. They're not keeping them. They weren't bagging them up. This was, you know, in the 80s. People weren't quite as conscious about, you know, rubbish and and keeping the environment clean. They're just dropping them and the wind carries them further down slope. So we have a, a little idea of what the weather was like that day. And then, of course, water often moves through this area. So some of them get covered up by silt and the grass grows over them. So they're now in an archaeological deposit. The ones we found were just those were on the surface or those that were sticking up. So some of them actually were at a 90-degree angle to the surface, sticking up through the silt. So that moment in time is now captured in an archaeological deposit that probably no one is ever going to go and excavate. This will probably be the only time anybody has an interest in these cable ties. So that for me is kind of the bits of plastic and how we analysed them actually gave us a small insight into a little story about what people were doing. But I've got to tell you something. I did not intend for this all to be about cable ties, but I've got to tell you one more cable tie story because to me it's amazing. So after this piece of work, we had to find out, like, how was the cable tie invented? Where does it come from? Because nobody in our team knew because you don't think about cable ties, do you? So we had to start researching to find out how they originated. And I love this story because there was an engineer who worked for a US electrical outfitting company. So so they made all of the accoutrements you needed to electrify something, have electric power for something. And they'd been established in the late 1890s. But in the 1950s, in 1956, this engineer, Morris C. Logan, went to a Boeing aircraft factory where his company was supplying the, all the bits and pieces. And there were men working there who had to wire up the cables inside the aeroplanes. And they did this by uh, using waxed string to tie the cables together. So, you know, you tie these knots to a certain tension. And doing this repeatedly destroyed their hands. It was, they called it hamburger hands. So they would like develop blisters and their hand and then blisters on top of blisters and and they called it hamburger hands because their hands looked like raw meat so Morrissey Logan was looking at this thinking there's got to be a better way so he went home and invented the cable tie and I love that this isn't a technological problem although it kind of is I love that this is a human problem like a, a compassionate problem he looks at something that must be really uncomfortable and unpleasant and thinks, I'll fix this. He wasn't thinking about the aircraft. He was thinking about those hands, those those people and their lives. And that's how we get the cable tie today. Wow, that's fascinating. <laughs> I think it's fascinating, but I do realise that not everyone shares my obsession with the cable tie. Oh, it's uh, it's it's phenomenal, right? Because usually when we think of space missions, at least from a the perspective of an engineer or the typical space enthusiasts. We look at engineering details 
going missing. For example, right now, a lot of engineering detail, a lot of technicalities of the Apollo missions, for instance, are lost because we don't really have any of the original engineers who worked or built the Apollo missions uh, who are in service right now. So, but you never really look at the, the human aspect of this, the, the story aspect, the very essence of this whole space program, I would say, you know, which is the human aspect. But this is uh, really fascinating. Do you also look at space debris as in space objects in space? Do you also, what kind of insights do you infer from looking at space debris? as a space archaeologist? Yeah, well, it's difficult to kind of look at it in that sense, as you know, because, you know, um, if some something is quite close to Earth and we have some amazing astrophotographers who can actually get, get images of stuff while they're in orbit, but it's not enough to really tell a lot from. So one of the frustrating things, I mean, you mentioned before people have an idea of archaeologists as being focused on excavation, which is, you know, a very hands-on physical uh, activity but in earth orbit you know I can't go there I can't excavate as such because there's literally no soil or anything to dig through Um, and the data that we have is is generally at this point in time it's it's locational data so the stuff that's tracked we know where it is and generally that's all we know about what happened to it after it got into orbit so there's a few things that I do around this. I mean, one is looking at the coming back to this idea of archaeology as as being about the materiality of objects. I look at some of these spacecraft and pieces of space junk. You know, what are they made out of? How many components are there? Uh, what happens to this material if it's in the space environment, uh, being bombarded by atomic elements? There's a lot of atomic oxygen out there in Earth orbit. So that's just like we're used to O2 here on Earth, but out in space it's just O, like just one O or one H or one HE. And it actually has a terrible effect on spacecraft surfaces. It causes them to erode. So thinking about uh, what we call in archaeology the the question of taphonomy, how do things survive? How do they interact with the environment and what kinds of effects does this have on them? And in archaeological terms, we look at this because we want to try and figure out the human behaviour that goes with the object. Now, once a satellite is in orbit, it basically only interacts with humans electromagnetically. It's the signals that go back and forth. Like there's no further intervention unless it's the Hubble Space Telescope. Like humans don't go near it again. It's all by itself. So we're just looking at how uh, the materials decay in that environment. And this is actually quite interesting because the average uh, satellite engineer, for example, would probably not think a lot about the spacecraft after the mission ends. At the end of life, you know, that engineer goes on to work on something else and they're not necessarily thinking about what happens to that piece of space junk, which then just becomes an entry in a catalogue. So what I'm interested in is how human materials fare in the space environment. And, and this, act, you know, it has a very practical application, as you can see, but it's an archaeological perspective because that's exactly the same kind of thing that we would do um, if we were attempting to analyse human beha- behaviour from an archaeological site on Earth. The other thing, I guess, is I'm interested in relationships between 
spacecraft chronologically and geographically. Uh, I found a new word recently, which is orbitography, which you can use instead of geography, because the geo, of course, means Earth and we're not on Earth. Um, so orbitography is is the stuff that happens in orbit. But I was going to say geographically, orbitographically doesn't kind of really have the same ring, does it? That's very cool. Uh, it's, it's very simple, though. I'm surprised how, how people didn't come up with it before. I think it is a very cool word. So if you start to compare satellites with each other, a number of interesting things emerge. So you notice that quite a few of the early satellites were spherical, like Vanguard 1, like Sputnik 1. Um, there's some later ones too, the Lagios 1 and 2 satellites. But we don't really make spherical satellites anymore. There was a reason to make them in the very early space age. One of those reasons was reflectivity because it would enable visual acquisition of the spacecraft from the ground. So in the first few years of the space age, tracking was uh, tracking mechanisms were still being worked out. So there's a, a design or a style or, or an aesthetic, like it's practical, but it's also about style that we don't really see anymore. Also, there's an incredible diversity of spacecraft types in the first 10 years of the space age. They're all kinds of shapes. They've got all kinds of attachments and booms and antennas and surface textures and that diversity reduces over time and this is for a whole range of reasons it's it's because spacecraft design kind of settles on one particular form which may or may not be the most efficient it's just the one that everybody sort of tends to companies start to get a monopoly on certain spacecraft types so they start to manufacture them all the same I mean, there's still, you'll, I find spacecraft fascinating to look at because they're, they're like plankton in the sea, like there's all these incredible shapes. But that diversity narrows down and you can kind of track that. And then by the time, in terms of sort of geographical, orbitographical changes, so you have from 1957 to 1962, everything is in low Earth orbit, everything. And then SYNCOM 2 reaches geosynchronous or geostationary orbit and then suddenly this whole new region of space is opened up and so it's, you think it's only seven years uh where low earth orbit is is the only region of space that humans use and then bam we're up to thirty-five thousand eight hundred kilometers and beyond so that's a massive leap and that the geostationary area, of course, is where a lot of telecommunication satellites are and some navigation satellites. And they all tend to look similar too. Like these days, the average uh, geostationary satellite will be a cylinder or a box with two very long solar panels. You know, they, they used to call them birds and they do in fact look a little bit like birds. They're probably manufactured only by uh, well, I was going to say a handful. It's probably greater than that. But not everybody is making geo-telecommunication satellites. There's the major companies who do this. So they, all, they do tend to all look similar. And so you can see, if you, if you look chronologically and across space, you can see that there are trends and patterns that didn't have to be the way they were. So I guess this is the key point here. There is a tendency 
for people to assume that space technology is perfectly efficient and perfectly adapted. It's the best that it can be. And, of course, this runs counter to the old joke that, you know, they sent humans to the moon in, in Apollo spacecraft that were made by the lowest bidders um, and then put all together. So, so there is that aspect of these things as well. But it's not the case that finished spacecraft or piece of space technology that you see isn't the most evolved or the most efficient. It's simply the end result of a whole series of interlocking decisions, some of which are social and political and not purely technological. So there's always a story behind what you see and things could easily have gone in a different path. I suppose from the archaeological perspective, we're interested in the the aspects of how humans conceive of technology and conceive of space and how that impacts on what we end up seeing, like what that physical object is. And just as a another story that I find very compelling here is uh, the Westford Needles. So this was a project in, I think it was, it was about the mid-60s. It was a military project to launch thousands and thousands of tiny, tiny little copper antennas, little little electric dipoles into Earth orbit where they would spread out and create a shell that you could bounce radio signals off. So this would enable radio signals to travel much, much further around the Earth. And this was, you know, an interesting experiment, except that just as the shell was going to keep radio signals bouncing around the earth, it was going to prevent radio signals entering the earth's region from outside. So it was the end of radio astronomy, which had taken off after the Second World War and had already, you know, revealed such extraordinary things about the universe. So the radio astronomers across the world got together and and said, please don't do this. Please don't stop. We would have, earth would have been, I mean, they would have decayed eventually but presumably the plan was to keep renewing them, keep putting more ones up. So they were like, don't cut us off, don't kill radio astronomy, please don't launch any more of these missions. So two Westford needles were launched. One didn't deploy any of the little antennas. The second one did, and they formed a, a ring around the Earth and they successfully bounced radio signals off it. And they didn't launch any more. They heard what the astronomy community was saying. But many of those little needles are still up there. They're actually encased in a, in a naphtha gel, which was meant to disintegrate. And they're still up there and they still re-enter from time to time. So that could have been a completely different technological trajectory. And it didn't happen. But the reason, you know, they could have chosen not to listen to the astronomers, just as it seems um, Elon Musk and others are not listening to astronomers right at the moment with the launch of the the mega constellation. So it could easily have been really, really different. And that's not about technology. It's about society and politics. It's about a political decision because it was a military experiment. So so this is something I find really interesting. All, All of the paths we might have gone down but didn't. What we see, the physical spacecraft and pieces of space junk we see or we track in Earth orbit are where we did go, where we did end up. It's dominated by the successful technologies for all those different reasons and we have the unsuccessful ones, examples of which are still up there, 
But I often like to think, you know, what if there's an archaeologist who isn't even necessarily human from the future, 500 years, 1,000 years, 10,000 years, they arrive at Earth, how will they analyse all of this stuff? What stories will they be able to figure out just by looking at this material? So when you look at things from that perspective and forget that we, you know, even have any documentary evidence, I think what stories do those objects alone tell? And these are some of the stories. It's technologies that failed, others that became dominant, and the archaeologists from the future might, well, they might come from a place which has very different kinds of technology and they'll be saying, how interesting, they chose to go this way. I wonder why that was. And maybe they'll never find out unless there's someone left on Earth who can tell them. Wow, that's, that's fascinating. And I'm really surprised. How come I've never heard of this Westford Needles, the whole mission? Yeah, I mean, it really is. Um, I mean, there's some interesting analyses of it that you can find online. But if you look for pictures of it, for example, um, there's not that many that are readily available. To really learn more about it, it would require going back into the actual archives. And, you know, that's something that requires time and effort and money. There's probably some space historians who have written in more detail about the project. To me, that is extraordinary. That could have been a whole different world. If that had gone on, the kinds of space junk we have now out there, it would have been completely different. That actually makes for a very great uh, plot for a science fiction movie or a novel or, or a series. It does. It does. You're right. Perhaps that can be your next book, you know. You can, uh, Dr. Space Junk imagines an alternate future or an alternate present. Oh, that is a fantastic idea, Ashana. I'm going to steal that idea. <laughs> I, I would be the first one to, I would be waiting in line for the book when it's published. I'm sure you do a great job. Alice, you also don different hats, right? You also teach at Flinders University and you're also a consultant. So what are you currently working on at the moment? I've got a few projects on the go at the moment. So the main one is the International Space Station Archaeological Project, which I'm working on with my colleague Justin Walsh from Chapman University in California. And this is basically looking at how humans form a society in space, like a, a, a unique space society on board the International Space Station. So we're looking at how they use objects to create uh, social cohesion or maybe objects that are the source of conflict, uh, how they adapt everyday things to make life in the microgravity environment easier, how they use the space within the space station. And there's a, there's a kind of urgency to this as well because the, we don't really know what's going to happen to the International Space Station. Uh, current projections are it might be 2028, 2030, it might be deorbited, and NASA is trying to get commercial partners to pay for it. It's, it's hugely expensive, as you can imagine. So we kind of have to do this archaeological work while it's still up there. It's the only time to do it. And and this may be, the International Space Station may be the only permanently occupied human outpost in space ever because the new Lunar Gateway project is not planned to be continuously occupied. It will be occupied periodically. So this might be 
you know, our last chance to actually find out how people use material stuff around them to create a, a working society in space. So you can see there's, you know, a lot of application for the results we might get from this. And in typical fashion, I've moved in from the International Space Station, I've moved my obsession from cable ties to Ziploc bags, those little bags of plastic with a the little fastening that you've probably got in your kitchen right now. So exactly the same ones are used in space. Uh, but they um, they do quite they do similar things in space, but they do different things in space. It's one of the things about microgravity is that uh, you know if you let something go on Earth, it will fall. But if you let something go in space, it will stay where it is. And human eyes aren't very well adapted to seeing in the middle distance. So if you let go of a spanner and it's floating in front of you, often you can't see it. It can be really difficult to see things. So one of the technologies that people use on the International Space Station is these very simple things like Ziploc bags and Velcro patches so that they can fasten things. They can make things stay in the same place. They can make them visible. And the thing I'm thinking about these is it's not just that it's a practical thing where you 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 stick your Ziploc bag, so many things have Velcro dots in them in, up there. You stick it to the wall with the Velcro dot and you know where the thing is. It's It's actually about memory. It's about filling in the place. So if you if you put something down on Earth, then you remember where it is and you can come back to find it. If you don't put something down or you don't fasten something on the International Space Station, it will move and your memory won't help you. Like you can't remember where it is because it, you didn't see it. It didn't gravitate towards the lowest energy point, the floor, or you know what it would be on Earth. So the Ziploc bags and the Velcro actually stand in for memory. They create memory in an environment where memory means something really different because objects behave differently. So that's kind of the direction I'm going in at the moment with the International Space Station. But I've got, yeah, a few other projects. So something I've been interested in for a long time is lunar and asteroid mining because a lot of my work as a heritage consultant on Earth was in mining industry. I was doing the heritage component of environmental impact studies. A lot of coal mining, uranium mining, copper, whole bunch of stuff. So I've been watching how that plays out on the in the lunar context. And something that really strikes me, um, I don't know if you've noticed this in, in the space community, there's this incredible commitment to imagining the moon as a dead world. So people have to conceptualise it as dead in order to say lunar resources are there to be used, they're, they're ours for the taking. So the two things in my observation very much go together and people can get quite angry when you suggest that the moon is not dead and they say, ah, oh, there's nothing alive on the moon. No, 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 I'm not talking about life. I'm talking about the moon being a, a place with active geological, coelological processes 
that have been, you know, ongoing since I can't remember what it is. I think it's four billion years ago. It's it's been around for a while, hasn't it? Anyway, thinking, trying to think about the moon as a, a an environment or a landscape that has value in its own right, and. This has led me to work with a small group of people to create a declaration of the rights of the moon, which we released in February 2021. So we created, we we thought about the moon as if it were an entity in its own right that had the right to exist and thought about what kind of rights it should have. So if if you're interested, if you just uh, Google Declaration of the Rights of the Moon, you should find the statement that we came up with and it's it's a starting point really it's it's a starting point to have a discussion because you have you have these people who are so they want the moon to be dead because they have that vision of the future where lunar resources will be used to take us out to the rest of the solar system and i'm not saying that i'm uninterested in that or that's not a good thing but but there's that whole school of people then you have a large, well, again, this is just my experience. When I talk to just people in the general public and mention lunar mining or in situ resource utilisation or anything like that, I find people are just shocked, absolutely shocked because they don't know about any of this and it never entered their head that the same kinds of activities that have had not great environmental consequences on Earth could happen on another planet. So there's there's two sort of strands of belief, if you like, about what should happen on the moon. And there are many others, but I just noticed these as, as you know, very strong ones. So it seemed to us like we needed to, we needed to broaden the dialogue, I guess. We needed to introduce something new that would create a different starting point for discussing how we should enact our relationships with the moon. So having a declaration of the rights of the moon and the right of the moon to exist intact uh, because it is important for itself, not just as a resource for humans, you know, there's, there's a lot of movements on earth which are doing similar things with rivers and mountains and landscapes acknowledging that they have value in their own right so it's not that much of a stretch to say well let's have a little bit of a think about this for the moon and we're really just wanting to get raise public awareness because everyone on earth is a stakeholder in the moon raise public awareness so that people can can feel they have the right to have an opinion it doesn't have to be ours you know it doesn't they don't have to agree with the declaration the point isn't to get people to agree the point is just to to allow the broader public outside the space community allow them to have an opinion and allow them to form uh, their own ideas about it so that's been really that's been really interesting and I'm quite excited about it so if people want to go and have a look at the Declaration of the Rights of the Moon, um, that would make me very happy. And nowadays, everyone is more environmentally conscious because we live on this planet. We take ownership of this planet. But how do you think an average person can connect the same way to the moon? 
that's a really interesting question. I think the average person will have seen the moon and accepted the moon as part of their world. So we have, you know, going out at night in the moonlight, um, watching the phases of the moon. Uh, We have all of the uh, poetry and literature and culture that are around the moon. Uh, Some really interesting research I did uh, a little while ago was about children's reactions to the moon. And in the uh, late 1800s, early 1900s, someone did some work and asked asked little kids what they thought about the moon. And it was really lovely and charming because they saw the moon often as a friend, someone that they could share their lives with and tell their secrets to. And we have the idea that the moon is is romantic. It it shines its light down on on lovers and uh, it blesses romance, all of that kind of stuff. So I think there are just so many points at which people connect with the moon, what, whatever that is. Even if, even if it's not visual, it doesn't have to be visual because you feel the effects of the moon, you know, in the working of the tides and, and a whole range of different things. So everybody has that connection to the moon. Then you have the really interesting, so the Apollo lunar landing missions created a different kind of relationship. So suddenly you could see the surface of the moon up close. And even at the time in, in you know, 1969 uh, and the years that followed, people speculated about whether this would ruin all those other meanings of the moon is if humans landing on the moon would actually strip away all of those symbolic and social um, meanings and just turn the moon into into the grey dead rock. Well, as I've already mentioned, there are some people who think that it has done that. But when I talk to people, uh, they still feel very connected to the moon. Like that didn't make the moon suddenly lose its symbolic appeal. We still have all of these stories, you know, when there are super moons or blood moons or blue moons. I, I people often ask me, you know, to make comments about werewolves and mental health and menstruation, all kinds of things. Like there's just so much. So the Apollo missions didn't take all of that away. They just added another layer and level of meanings for the moon. So I think when I talk to people, the, the two main concerns that come up are that human activities might alter the visual appearance of the moon as we see it from the surface of Earth, and people feel strongly about that. They don't want that to happen. And at this point in time, you know, we, we, we can't say. It, likely it would not, but we don't know that for sure. The other reaction people have is, and as you say, you know, there has been a big growth in environmental consciousness. So people say, look, you know, we've trashed the Earth. Seriously, we're going to go to another celestial body and do that too. So what I find interesting in that argument is that people with that opinion aren't concerned that there is no life on the moon. That is not the critical part for them. They do actually already have an understanding of the moon as an environment in its own right that that has some kind of right to exist. So that argument doesn't actually need to be made with a lot of people. They get it. And 
something I found really interesting was an exercise I did with some primary school children from the ages of, you know, eight to 11 last year. I asked them to write their own declaration of the rights of the moon. We called it the Berrigan Declaration because that's where the school was. And I talked a lot about the moon, but I didn't explain what a rights document was and I didn't uh, give them any examples of what rights could be. I just gave them some information about the moon um, and told them a little bit about some of the plans for the moon in, in a very neutral way. Then I asked them to come up with their own ideas of, of the rights of the moon. And they did this in an extraordinary way. Like they almost didn't have to think about it. They almost already knew what they thought. And some of the things they came up with are actually very similar to what are, what is in the published Declaration of the Rights of the Moon. So I found this interesting because it's, it reinforced for me the idea that a lot of people have a quite what appears to be a quite sort of in, intuitive understanding of what it means for something to have rights. What also, also interests me about this is they don't have to have been to the moon to have this understanding. It's not premised on ever having travelled there. You know, as we know, only 12 people have ever walked on the surface of the moon. So even without that, people still have a quite developed idea of the moon as a distinct environment. So I think there really is something there. You'll hear a lot of people in the space world talk as if these two positions, the dead moon and the moon is an environment worth protecting, as if these are diametrically opposed and you've got to have one or the other. Well, you don't. That's just nonsense. And it makes me quite angry, actually, um, to hear people talk this way. There, there are many, many positions in between. I mean, we don't automatically take a middle position simply to resolve the conflict. It's not about that at all. But there are many different ways. As we've seen on Earth, we have plenty of examples on Earth of how you can manage to balance everybody's interests and still allow some kind of activity to go ahead. I think what most people really object to is the idea of uh, profit-making companies doing the best out of this. People are generally fairly okay with scientific activity and they'd be fairly okay with larger scale activity that is meant to sustain humans in space so that they can find out more about the solar system. The thing in my experience, and other people may have different conversations, that people object to is massive wealthy individuals and companies making even more money out of something that really belongs to us all. And I, you know, cannot but find some um, very strong reasons to support that position. Seems to me like, so when we think of the moon, right? So you said all of us have this very personal emotional connect with the moon from the childhood. I guess when we look at the moon, we have this emotional connect with it, the romantic and all the feelings come forth. And then we look at the same moon through a telescope. We look at it from a perspective of scientific inquiry. And then when we actually look at the landings uh, or any sort of major activity or a rover on moon, immediately I think our perspective uh, changes to that of conquest or we, we stop associating the moon. We are no longer emotionally attached to it. So I think maybe it's important to bring back this emotional or this, this connect, this very personal connect back into focus 
so we can make better decisions. You're absolutely right, Rishana. And, and isn't it interesting how the distance of viewing has a direct relationship to, to that kind of thing? I think too, you know, when you think of, we've kind of been taught, we've kind of been led to believe that the close-up lunar landscape isn't beautiful because it has fewer colours and because, you know, there's not a riot of, of life and living things happening there. And I think about that. I mean, I've, I've been doing a lot of work on the aesthetic values of shadows on the moon. But I think if you learning to appreciate the aesthetics of the lunar landscape for itself is kind of practice for us doing it on other planets. And I think people already have that with Mars. So, and of course, you know, Mars has got a lot more colour going on in it, but then colour is all, colour perception is, it's a whole area of anthropological inquiry as well. Like colour perception isn't some, it's social, it's not, physiological people don't experience or see colors the same way but people are quite comfortable thinking and feeling about what it would be like to walk on the surface of mars and watch the sunrise uh, and watch the moon set all of those things so there's there's already a kind of an aesthetic way of understanding the martian landscape that accords it its own values and its own beauty and nothing is alive on mars that we know of so with the moon, I think it's it's about perception and it's about feeling and it, it it's as as you say like we we haven't yet um, we have so many more pictures of the surface of the moon than we do of Mars, but we haven't yet we've bought so much into this idea that the moon is dead that we haven't learned how to appreciate the very distinct aesthetic qualities of the moon, which of course we only experience through photographs. But I think this is if we're really going to be citizens or or members of the solar system, we've got to develop these senses. We've got to develop our tools for appreciating otherworldly environments. We can't judge everything by the baseline standard of what we think is here on Earth, which, you know, which is just one planet among many in one solar system among billions, in one galaxy among whatever. So we can't judge everything by this standard. We have to develop new aesthetic appreciations, which I think isn't just about, you know, our enjoyment. It's so we can make decisions that are not one-dimensional about what we do in the future. Yeah, that's, uh, that's that's very true. The closest thing I could think of on Earth, when you look at the typical lunar regolith, right, the white, the ashen surface is probably these white sandy beaches on Earth. But but that perhaps only invokes memory of Earth when there's a water body, when there's the beach, when there's the ocean right next to it. Unfortunately, Moon doesn't have. But it does have footprints in the sand. So there's, you know, the footprints that the tide won't wash away. So I think there's, I don't know, I think there's a connection there. Yeah, maybe, I don't know, some kind of a theme park or something on a white sandy beaches to simulate. Yes, that's a, I love that idea. I think that is a brilliant idea. Well, if I had enough money, I would have done that. <laughs> it's not late. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that can be my uh, mission, life mission. <laughs> mission for this decade. Life is too long. 
So one pressing question, right, when we talk about preservation of the rights of the moon, all these aspects, the sustainability of space in general, the prob- the very problem of space debris is is right there. It's already affecting a lot of our satellites. We, we keep doing these, uh, we keep dodging each other in space. All the satellites keep dodging each other in space already. The ISS dodges them at least once a week. And it's still there, but we're not really doing anything in terms of regulations or more stringent, I would say more stringent regulations. So why do you think people would would formulate laws for the sustainability of moon when we don't even have a moon base in sight for the next 10 years or any serious activity on the moon for the next 10 years? Well, NASA does seem to think it's going to put people there on 2024. But I agree with you, Roshana. I think that is wildly optimistic. Um, so I don't think it's going to happen. We do have a bit of time to work this out. Uh, and yeah, that's, I mean, that's a really good point. Nobody's managed to figure it out for Earth orbit, or at least we know what needs to be done in Earth orbit. It's just that people aren't doing it. They're, they're acting more in national or self-interest and uh, contributing to an issue that, that could well end up cutting us off from the ability to go to space, the worst-case scenario. So why should we have any optimism about how we use the moon and other celestial bodies? Yeah, I mean, if I think about that, um, I think maybe you're right. Like maybe we shouldn't be. We, we haven't managed to do it for Earth orbit when this is such a pressing problem, as you say. So why assume we'll have anything decent in place for the moon? And, well, I think you're right. I think they're as optimistic as I like to feel. I think it's probably more realistic to assume that this will remain a complete mess and nothing will get done and it will just all unroll um, as it does and we'll be left looking at it later thinking, hell, you know, we could have fixed this and we didn't. So I suppose, I mean, the one bright spot for me really is that people, just regular people, who at this point in time often don't really have a lot of information about what's going on up there, can actually make a difference because politicians respond to votes and a lot of this stuff is rooted in national politics, not international politics. So if you can get particular nations to say, hey, everybody's saying we need to do something about this, then maybe you can get a little bit more impetus going at that international level. Maybe we could have something like penalties for satellite uh, companies who don't play by the rules. Like at the moment there is literally no penalty for doing the wrong thing. And part of this is because this is international regulation and not legislation, so international uh, conventions and treaties generally don't have deterrence measures in the same way that legislation does. But, you know, maybe there are other ways to do this. You can get um, nations to regulate their own satellite launches more thoroughly. So I think pressure can be brought to bear by the public. And I think it's critical that the public is uh, informed. And 
I don't mean educated here because a lot of people say, oh, we can solve this. We just we just educate the public about what space is about. So we don't we don't have to do that. What we have to do is make sure that the relevant information is available and that people realise there is a question. And so once they they understand that there is an issue, they can make their own minds up about it if the information is is readily accessible. And that's becoming more and more the case. I suppose the sticking point here is um, having the recognition of the problem. And, and bizarrely, so most people these days, not, well, maybe not most people, but a large proportion of the Earth's population now owns a smartphone or has a smartphone in their family and uses all the data that that uh, can bring. A lot of that data is from space. And yet there is a big disconnect between people's daily lives and the security of those space assets. And, and, and so that is a point of connection that I don't think we have utilised well enough to really uh, help people to see that it's not just, you know, faraway spacecraft doing scientific things that don't matter. This is actually stuff that now affects everyday life on Earth and that it's vulnerable. And I know, I know everyone in the space community talks about this a lot, but it doesn't seem to be an idea that's strongly out there. So information, which is why your podcast is a great idea as well, because this is all something contributing to the ecosystem of information that's out there. Yeah, I really hope we figure this out quickly because it's just shooting ourselves in the foot if we don't. Yeah, absolutely. Coming back to space archaeology, can you tell us about your team and what kind of skill sets do they have? From what backgrounds do they come? Okay, so that will be the Arche International Space Station Archaeological Project. Our team is a little bit loose and fast, but at the core of it is me and Justin Walsh from Chapman University. So we're both archaeologists. Um, my background, as mentioned, was in um, Aboriginal archaeology in Australia. Justin's background was more classical archaeology. He spent many years working in Italy and various Mediterranean places, looking at the great classical civilizations. So we kind of both came from, from different kinds of archaeology. We're also working with Eric Lindstedt, who is the director of the Machine Learning Assistive Laboratory at Chapman University. So he's a machine learning person and he's also worked for Boeing. So he's got a good space background and he's helping us apply machine learning to NASA's image archive of the International Space Station. We're also working with Amir Kanan Kashefi, who is a data engineer, because we have to have a massive database. We're building a, a hybrid um, graph relational database to put all of the stuff from the International Space Station in. And that's just beyond the capabilities of Justin and I as archaeologists. Like we do that kind of stuff, but with databases that probably professionals would look at and think were ridiculous. And we've also got millions of images um, to work with on the International Space Station. And we also have a few other colleagues. So Paola Castagno, who's at Cardiff University in Wales, and she is a sociologist who's looked at the 
veggie experiments and a few other experiments they run on the International Space Station from, from a sociological point of view. And then we have a number of other colleagues that we're working with on future projects as well, so who, are, who are architects, different kinds of soil scientists. So it's kind of quite a range of different skills and backgrounds. When you're working in space, like archaeologists get trained to analyse technologies that were more common in the past, like like stone tools. I mean, they're still being used in the present. This isn't a, a technology that's gone away. That's, stone tool technology is still very much alive, but not much used in the space world. But as archaeologists, we don't, we don't have this kind of training. We'd need to combine you and me together in the same person to have the ideal space archaeologist. Uh, so we have to learn a lot of this stuff from scratch. And it's it's really important to be collaborating with people who can provide the different parts, the different backgrounds, uh, so that, you know, we don't end up going down research paths that, that are just, well, I don't know, just aren't going to work because of that lack of knowledge. So, I mean, archaeologists are always very collaborative. We generally work in teams. And in space archaeology, uh, you know, it becomes even more important because, it's not like, I mean, I could, um, if I decided to change my specialisation as an archaeologist, I could switch from stone tools to ceramics if I wanted to. But, you know, in the space world, it's it's a lot more complex than that. So not quite as easy to just say, you know, well, I'm just going to do satellites today. So there's so much I don't know. I'm learning all the time. Uh, sometimes, you know, I have perspectives. I talk to spacecraft engineers and they're like, oh, I never thought of that. So I have something to bring to the table as well. Um, but it is, yeah, it requires a lot of expert knowledge. And one of these days, space archaeologists in the future are going to be doing combining engineering and archaeology in the same course, because that's what you basically need to have a good handle on the technology. Yeah, it's very similar to a lot of such collaborative projects needing a very diverse skill set in space. Mm. I think we've covered a lot of stuff. I've taken up a lot of your time. So one last customary question. Mm -hmm. If space enthusiasts or students want to reach out to you, what's the best way to do so? Uh, probably the best way is to find me on Twitter at Dr. Space Junk. I, I won't give my email address because my inbox is just a, a terrible place that I often don't find things in. So better to find me on social media. So very happy to answer questions and receive information. And I do have a book, uh, Dr. Space Junk versus the Universe Archaeology in the Future, which is available from MIT Press in America and Europe and uh, New South Books in Australia and New Zealand uh, and it's written for you know a, a, it's not an academic book it's a, a sort of a general audience book so if you want to learn more about space archaeology that's quite a good place to start. Thank you Alice you've you've shared such amazing and exciting and wow breathtakingly awesome stories thank you so much for your time today. It's my pleasure. I'm sorry I didn't realize I did talk rather a lot about the cable ties, but no, it was it was fascinating because it's exactly the kind of things you never think about, and it's uh, these stories have to be told. So I, I'm a huge fan. I'm, I'm gonna go dig up your stories on cable ties now. So <laughs> did you also talk about the cable ties in your book? 
Uh, yeah, I did. Yeah. I- I'm totally going to dive into your book. Thank you very much for having me on your podcast. Yeah, thank, thank you for taking the time.